Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. One of my pet theories is that what we nowadays call religion is based in the human emotions of generosity, or at least generosity's poor cousin, reciprocity. In this case, I'll define generosity as giving with no strings attached, and reciprocity as exchange with some strings attached. In my scenario, the religions of the world began as local expressions of generosity. Now, why do I think that? Because we human beings evolved as tribal animals. We are dependent animals, but we are also inventive and productive animals. We have depictions of exchange economies from early recorded history. So I can imagine a scenario in which the best spear point maker in the village makes me a brand new spear point. Thanks, Ugg, I say. Now, Ugg, in his best Sopranos accent, says, hey, wait a minute, I got obligations here. <laughs> Sorry, New Jersey. And so, exchange economies begin. Exchange in one form or another appear to be the universal economy previous to the exchange of some kind of precious metals. To be clear about what I'm attempting to say here, the English word generosity has its Latin root generositas, generosus, meaning noble or magnanimous. And yes, noble being the chief, being able to give out the stuff. The English word reciprocity has a Latin root, reciprocitas, reciprocus, meaning returning in the same way. It's a metaphor. You go back the same way you came. Therefore, mutual exchange or mutual dependence. The two words are clearly very different in what they're supposed to lead to. So what about that thing that I've talked a lot about from here, the thing that we call luck or good fortune or fate or way too much of whatever? Who or what do we thank for that, for that excess? A good hunt, plentiful berries, the tornado goes in another direction, the way too much thing, the true too much. Who or what do we think? What happened when primates began to think about generosity? Maybe even being too generous out there. Who or what do we thank for the generosity of the planet? Who is implied? Well, is there reciprocity involved somehow? 
If so, if we have to pay this back, who or what do we pay back? And we know from the evidence that this line of thought led to some natural questions. Can I do something and thereby get the luck, I mean good outcome, that I want? Can who or what be cajoled to give me something? That's my scenario for how religion evolved. And we know how it worked out. One primatologist, I forget who, I, I read too much, I suppose. I don't write, keep, always keep notes. But one primatologist says, the way to consider the difference between humans and chimps is by imagining 150 chimps on an airplane. <laughs> put them in, close the door, wait an hour. <laughs> then you put 150 people on an airplane, close the door, Wait an hour. Now, the scenario is not to say that human beings are smart and chimps are not. There's not good and bad in this scenario. Chimps don't build airplanes, so they don't really need to evolve to deal with being on them. But we do. That's a difference. Our understanding of reciprocity is highly evolved as long as we consider the rules of social conduct, the reciprocity that is assumed is functioning properly. That's a central discussion right now concerning Gaza. Where is the breaking point of civil society? We've probably already crossed it. Because we know that the human understanding of reciprocity has some weak points. For example, reciprocity depends on most people having something to trade. What if nobody does? We know that overemphasis on reciprocity can make relationships transactional. What are you going to do for me? And that leads to tit for tat, and that can break down quickly. And then we know that there's that good old human habit of keeping score. Keeping score. And when people start keeping score, resentment and that green-eyed monster jealousy are not far behind. And then reciprocity has reached a breaking point. Now here's a question I've been pondering. Does generosity itself hold the key to what we call religion, at least in its best qualities? What about generosity could be made into a way of life, which is what religions are supposed to be? I'm not talking money here, by the way. I want to keep money out of the conversation for the moment. I'm imagining an overall mental attitude, a worldview of generosity way beyond the bounds of writing checks. Rather than living in a reality of scarcity and reductionism, rather than living in a mindset of never enough, living with an attitude that there's plenty of everything all the time. The scariest thing is thinking about it and getting it right. People have long prayed for rain. Now we know how rain comes about, but we still can't control it. 
rainfall, good crops. These are generosity in their very essence, our gratitude to the planet that sustains us, I think is an obligation. As far as I'm concerned, I've always been thankful, but then I've always been a farmer. So rain means a lot to us. If we, each of us, doesn't have unquestioned gratitude for our sustaining planet, I think we're just not thinking about it very much. All we have to do is look around. And it appears that our so-called domination of nature has made nature itself indomitable. And that's because of our ingratitude. We ourselves decide upon the sacred and we create the sacred. We say that every week here. Humanists know that we create the sacred. Now, a little different, but I'm coming back to gratitude. As many of you know, and generosity, I have a love-hate relationship, or maybe a respect-despair relationship with the New York Times and Atlantic Monthly columnist David Brooks. Brooks is one of the few nationally recognized columnists writing about ethics and classical liberalism today. So you kind of have to engage with him, but he ticks me off quite often. So what should greet me this week but this? An article in the Atlantic Monthly by David Brooks titled A Humanist Manifesto. The world feels like an awful place right now. Here's how to make it better, end quote. Now, first off, David Brooks is a well-read person. He knows very well that we humanists have a humanist manifesto. We actually have three of them. He knows he's stepping into our territory. Brooks may even be well enough read to know that the first humanist manifesto was largely pinned by a minister of First Unitarian Society, Ray Bragg back in 1933. Second off, the reason I have that love-hate relationship with Brooks and his discussions of ethics is that he routinely falls back into conservative assumptions concerning how Christianity, his definition of Christianity, can save us. Brooks isn't exactly changing his tune in this particular article. He is, of course, talking little h humanist, right? But what he says in the article is also true of big H humanists, our humanist movement, at least when we are at our best. And this is a call for us to be our best. Brooks begins by citing the example of one of our greatest humanist voices, James Baldwin, who said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced wise and classic humanism. After citing our humanist James Baldwin, Brooks writes this. Here, amid the corrosive flow of dehumanization was the very image of a defiant humanist. He means James Baldwin. Here was a person who had organized his life around the great humanist endeavors, to try to see others in all their complexity and depth, to try to see yourself with humility, self-awareness, and compassion, to try to act in ways that are considerate, just, and discerning, above all, to try to see the world from another person's point of view. 
in these violent, vicious times, this humanist gospel of curiosity and respect for others may seem hopelessly woo-woo and naive. But I assure you that humanism is a hard-headed and practical way of being. We call it pragmatism, actually, right? He goes on to say, the ability to understand the people you're dealing with is practical. Leading with respect and curiosity is practical. Rabidly, the dehumanizers lead us down a death spiral of animosity and distrust. Bravely and effectively, the humanists try to break the descent at the center of every healthy family, organization, and nation is a core of humanistic skill, the capacity to see others deeply, to understand them, and to make them feel seen, heard, and understood. As I've said before, that is indeed our humanist superpower, the capacity to see others deeply, to understand them, and to make them feel seen, heard, and understood. And also, as I've said many times from up here, the quintessential humanist activity is quality conversation, the den of conversation. And one last quote from David Brooks, and then I'll let him go. Emotional intelligence can be developed like athletic ability. Yes, people are born with a certain innate temperament and capacity, but you can get more emotionally proficient with practice. The key trait of a dehumanizer is emotional crudity. A humanist, on the other hand, has learned complex emotional responses. And yeah, that's what we heard from our headless humanist last weekend who had had an unfortunate brush with a cannonball. You don't need all that brain power to explore your emotional intelligence. Generosity. It's easily missed when it is generously given. We've got six or eight people downstairs right now making wonderful cinnamon rolls for you. And they're not going to ask for nothing. It is generously given. Although we will raise some money for the minister's discretionary fund. Uh, <laughs> And I do use that money wisely to help people at FUS. But you get the idea. Humanist spaces, just take that for an example, all over this country. I mean, this one is big and beautiful. It's also the biggest and beautifulest humanist place in the country. Uh, but all over the country, humanists are giving generously to keep our little movement going, exactly because of what David Brooks is saying. We are the key to a better future. It's central and essential to humanist thought. We do things because as social animals, we consider those things to be the right thing to do. Often, no, we don't just have to. We do. One of the features of humanist thinking about religion is that religion is for human beings, not the other way around. In the same spirit, humanist generosity isn't only about how a person shares, but also how our attitude toward the material world in general shows itself. As that good old first humanist manifesto puts it, thanks Ray Bragg, 
The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate with for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. That's my favorite line from the, any of the humanist manifestos, but yes, I'm an old democratic socialist. As the current humanist manifesto puts it, these days, and this is the one that we still have in effect, getting a little agey, working to benefit society, it says, maximizes individual happiness. Progressive cultures have worked to free humanity from the brutalities of mere survival and to reduce suffering, improve society, and develop global community. We seek to minimize the inequities of circumstance and abilities, ability, and we support a just distribution of nature's resources and the fruits of human effort so that as many as possible may, can enjoy a good life. That's a lot wordier than Mr. Bragg was, not nearly as well phrased, but it's still true right there. That is what we want to do, is spread the good life and the ability to live a good life as widely as possible. That is the center of our generosity. Yes, what our world needs today is more humanism with both a little H and a big H. We humanists insist that those impulses that we call religious must function in positive directions. Humanism is about being humane. How we give to and of ourselves is who we are. Generosity of spirit can save humanity. It's about the only thing that can. Why do we give? Why do we share? Let's insist upon living generously. Generously, not because of obligation or fear, but because of our deep sense of interconnectedness with other humans, other sentient beings, and the planet itself. Because of a desire for societal betterment. Because of the deep personal fulfillment that comes from living in generosity. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.